0: It's always great on uh, Saturday morning when I go to McDonald's for breakfast and read the newspaper to find out the latest victory of the Ferndale football team. This week they gave a little lesson in football games to Garfield. Reminiscent of the Jake Locker days, you know, 50 to squat or whatever it was. Uh, Sue and I went to the game a week ago when they gave the Seahome Mariners a lesson in how to win football games. It wasn't quite as good of a lesson, but uh, there was a lesson there, too. Um, We sat in the Sizemore rooting section, uh, rooting for Alex Conley, uh, and uh, had a great great, uh, renewal of our awareness of what it's like to be a football parent. My son loved playing football. Uh, We lived down in Tuckwell, and he played football for Foster High School. And he he barely made it onto the varsity, but he made it onto the varsity defense because he was smart enough to read the signals that the coach would give about defensive plays. The other guy that played his position was not smart enough to remember all of those, and so even though my son was kind of a mediocre player, he he received the calls and gave them to the defense uh, every time. And, uh, you know, at the, at the last dinner of the football team before the last game, which they held in our church fellowship hall, and, and I, was a, I was a trainer with the team, so I was there at every, at every game, and one of the coaches came over to me and said, your son has no talent for football whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but he makes up for it in heart. So I knew then that my son was a chip off the old block, Athletically, untalented, but a nice guy. (laughs) Uh, Most parents want their children to do two things, to be like their good traits and to somehow miss their bad traits. And those of us who know Christ as Savior want our children to come to faith in Christ. Now in Proverbs 22 there's a promise that says train up a child in the way that he, he should go and when he's old he will not depart from it. But I'm aware you cannot train a child into faith in Christ. But there is something that parents can do which will give their children the greatest possible opportunity to come to faith in Christ. And I want to read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy 1, verse 3. I thank God. This is the Apostle Paul talking to Timothy, who was a pastor. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and then your mother, Eunice, and I am persuaded it's in you also. The genuine faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, then in your mother, and I'm convinced it is you. As I said, you cannot train a child into genuine faith. You cannot birth a child into genuine faith. No matter what some church may try to tell us about some rite performed on a small child, faith Is something that has to be developed by an individual person. But parents have a part to play. And so I want to ask the question today, what does genuine faith look like, especially in a parent? It's obvious that part of Timothy's ability to come to faith in Christ came because he saw genuine faith in his grandmother and in his mother. And when the apostle Paul came along to his town preaching the gospel... Timothy was able to believe and then eventually was called into ministry alongside Paul and then by himself. So what does genuine faith look like, especially in a parent? Well, first of all, genuine faith is the result of a new heart. There are many people in the world, especially in, 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 the, in America, who like the general concepts of Christianity. They especially like what is usually referred to as the golden rule. And it's usually spoken like this, do unto others as they do unto you. The only problem is that's not the golden rule. And the real problem with the golden rule is the verse that comes before it. Teacher, this is somebody talking to Jesus. Which is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule actually is care for others the same way you typically put yourself first. But the golden rule is preceded by the most important instruction God could give us. The heart of Christianity is the relationship of your heart to God. And the reason that's important for genuine faith is this. Out of your heart is what comes the stuff of life. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. Real popular today to look at people who are extremely dysfunctional, to use the common word, and say, wow, what's wrong with them? God says when somebody acts wrong, On the outside, it's because something is wrong on the inside and it's their heart. Many people make the mistake about Christianity in what I would call mental awareness. For instance, people know about Christ. They approve of the Christian way of life. They may try to act like Christ in their parenting. They desire for their children to have Christian morals. I had a family come to my church in Tukwila they said, we, we think it's time for our boys to get some moral training. That's good. That's all good. But what you need to understand, if you're a parent or anticipate being a parent, is this. If your connection to Christ is no deeper than your thoughts, your children's connection to Christ will be the same or less. Genuine faith starts in the heart. In fact, uh, this is what we read about our need here from Ezekiel, and it's repeated later in the New Testament. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Christianity is not something we do like uh, we learn a job skill and we do it every day. Christianity is something that changes us from the heart, first of all, and it works out from there. Jesus tells us how to get a new heart in John chapter 3. He said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, physical birth and a spiritual birth, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The book of Ezekiel said we need a new heart. Jesus put it in terms of a new birth. The idea being that your natural condition is not good enough. He said the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. That's what the cross is about. It's a reference to being lifted up on a uh, a pole of an event in the Old Testament. And he said, you need to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for your sins, that you can't save yourself. And when you believe that, God will create a new heart. And the new heart will result in some new things. And that kind of faith transformation in you will witness to your children. If you want them to have a transforming faith, you need to model that transforming faith, and it only happens through faith in Christ. I don't know if you can see that. It says Baptist on the top, and it's a pin. It's a lapel pin. When I was a kid, many churches like ours, not just the Baptist, but many churches like ours had a Sunday school attendance encouragement program called the cross and crown pins and after you had come to Sunday school like three times they give you this little bronze colored pin anybody remember these yeah a few of you give you this kind of bronze colored pin after a year you got this nice white enamel job and then after another year you see how it says second year you get the wreath to go around the pin and then every year after that, you would get a bar to hang on it. And if I had been getting those all these years, I'd have 56 bars, because I've been in Sunday school since I was two weeks old. <laughs> and I would wear them on my black suit, I'll tell you what. <laughs> I had a friend in Seattle... Who said to me, I got all those cross and crown pins. Because his parents took him and his brother to church every week. But my friend did not believe in Christ any more than he had flown to the moon. Because his parents took him and his brother to church and dropped the mouth and said, Go in. Friends, If you want your kids to have genuine faith, you need to have genuine faith. And genuine faith starts in the heart. It's not an activity we put on. It's not not coming to church once in a while. It's not giving a little money. It's us believing in Christ. And when we do that, there is a transformation. This this thing that we did today did not save Michael. Michael. He was already born again by God. The transformation had already happened in his heart. What he did was obey Christ. Christ said, after you have believed in me, you need to be baptized to show that faith. And that's what Michael did. If our kids are going to learn about genuine faith, they have to learn it from us. Genuine faith is the result of a new heart. Secondly, genuine faith causes... A spiritual mindset. Genuine faith causes a spiritual mindset. This is a a famous passage in the Old Testament about parents and children and relaying God's truth to them. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Sounds very similar to what Jesus said, isn't it? He was quoting this. And the words which I command you today shall be in your heart... And you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. God said, you need to give yourself to me and so that I will be in your heart, and then out of your heart you will speak. And what you will speak will be things about me. And it will be while you're walking, while you're in your house, and so on. You know, one of the, one of the prime ways God's chosen people, the Jewish people, in the time of Christ and up to today have followed this passage of Scripture looks like this. Do you see the thing right there tied on his head? It's a little box, and it has a piece of scripture written on it, put into the little box. And then you see this uh, on his arm, and in this thing here, there is a piece of scripture stuck in. It's called, uh, I want to make sure I get it right here, Tefillin. I don't know what the word means, but it refers to these two things. And of course, they do have little, little boxes like this with pieces of scripture nailed on the doorpost as well. Does it seem like that's what God meant when he said, gave this instruction? The key word here, the key word here is as. What's that mean? It means that God's word should be so much a part of you, it's as though it's tied on. It should be so much a part of your mind, it's as though it's tied right there. The idea is that, that we naturally talk about things that matter to us. Whatever's important in your life, you talk about it. Nobody has to tell you to do that. How many, you got a couple boys here that play football for Ferndale, right? Raise your hand. There you go, yeah. You ever talk about football? Yeah. Do your parents ever talk about football? Yeah, yeah. You know it. It's important right now. Okay? In a few months, it'll be basketball or wrestling or volleyball uh, for the gals or whatever other sports they're playing. Whatever's important to us, we talk about. Go to Costco, you get a good deal. You come out and you go, man, I got a great deal at Costco today. You know? um, or if you're in a period of life maybe where you're engaged, you're talking about your fiancé. Moms talk about Kids. Dads talk about how the kids are doing in football. (laughs) Moms talk about the people at work. Dads talk about the foolishness of the management. What Deuteronomy chapter 6 is saying is if you have a new heart and if your heart really is with God and if you really do love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, then it should be natural for you to talk about the Lord and the Lord's perspective on life. And that's not a matter of just walking around all the time somehow spouting theology. Uh, you know, it's, it's more like what's going on in life and what is the spiritual dimension. When I was in Tukwila, I would go out on crisis calls with the fire department and the police department. When I would come back, frequently one or more of my children would be sitting waiting, say, What happened? and you know there are a lot of incredible stories but i always took the opportunity i don't know whether they were interested in hearing but i always gave the spiritual dimension to what was going on i had this and this and this and this you know the best i could perceive of it now did i do that because i'm a preacher and i get paid to talk that way no i'll tell you why i did that i wanted them to understand the world from god's perspective And the only way that's going to happen is if we talk about the world in God's terms to our kids and to people around us. If your heart is with God, it should be normal just to talk about the spiritual dimensions of the events of life. Now, I understand that just like every other aspect of the Christian life, this is a growing thing. And it grows up, and it's the longer we know the Lord, the more it should be just normal but genuine faith causes a spiritual mindset which results in spiritual words. Turn with me now to James, just a few pages down the road past the book of Hebrews, to the book of James chapter 2, to our third point, which is this. Genuine faith causes righteous behavior. James chapter 2 and verse 14. The book of James was written by the, the brother of Jesus, or you know we would call him the half-brother because Mary was his mom. Uh, Jesus had God as his father, and this James had Joseph, obviously, as his father. But this is probably the earliest book written in the New Testament, so it lays out a lot of foundational truths. James chapter 2, 14, what does it profit? Where is the value, my brethren? If somebody says, I have faith, but he does not have works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O oh foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works and works, and, and by works his faith was made perfect or completed and the scripture was fulfilled which said Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, It certainly would be easy to read that passage of Scripture and think, are you telling me I have to believe in Christ and do some things, and together those two things will produce salvation? No. I'm telling you, no, that is not what it means, because verse 23 makes that very clear. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And also I understand that other books of the Bible make this very clear, like Romans 4. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as a debt. But to him who does not try to earn salvation, but believes on him who justifies or makes the ungodly righteous, his faith is accounted for righteousness. This passage of scripture is teaching us uh, one primary thing and one thing along the way. And the the thing along the way is this. The way you become righteous is by believing in Christ as your Savior. But if you truly believe, your heart will be changed, and not only will your mouth speak the things of God, but your actions will show the things of God. He uses an example there of somebody who's destitute. Somebody, you know, in that day, there certainly was no government welfare, And so somebody might come to you who was a friend and say, boy, I've fallen on hard times, I don't have any food. And he says, if you call yourself a Christian and you say to that person, go your way, be ye warmed and filled. He said, what in the world kind of faith do you have? In other words, if you had truly believed in Christ, and if the love of God had been put into your heart, and you had the transformation had become, then when that person comes, you have the love of God that's pushing you to say, boy, I, I don't have much, but I'll do what I can. True faith, genuine faith, transforms so that the behavior matches the words. When a person gets baptized, like Michael has, he puts himself on, uh, on the platform, so to speak, because people are saying, you told me you believed in Christ. Now, let's see, that, let's see that your behavior matches up to it. And that's a good kind of pressure. We need to encourage each other to believe in the Lord. What would you call a doctor who smokes... But he tells you to quit smoking. Well, you'd call him a what? Hypocrite. What would you call a pastor who preaches against immorality and then has an affair? Hypocrite. What would you call a politician who speaks at a conference about reducing greenhouse gases, but he flies to the meeting on a private jet? <laughs> don't say, don't say, no, We're not that this is not (laughs) spiritual dimension on life here remember we call him a hypocrite and what would you call a parent who talks to their children about behavior that pleases the Lord but doesn't live righteously themselves If you you can't stand the doctor, the preacher, or the politician who's a hypocrite, how do you suppose your child will respond to you if you're one? Our commitment to living the word of God should come from our transformed heart. And it is also a discipline that has to be developed. No parent is perfect. Perfect. They're not perfect when their children are born. They're not perfect when their children leave the home. They're not perfect when their grandparents are born. But can your children see that your heart is with the Lord and that your behavior is with the Lord? And when your behavior is wrong, that you apologize, that you confess, that you say, it is my goal to live like the Lord and I am working toward it. Is that the example you're given? If you are, you're giving an example of genuine faith genuine faith the last point that i'd like to make today is this genuine faith causes consistent behavior if there's been a transformation of your heart there should be a consistent transformation in your life here's a terrible story from the old testament about wickedness in a father and in sons now the sons of eli were corrupt and they did not know the lord a little background here eli was the high priest Eli was the high priest, not just one of the priests. He was the guy who presided over the worship of Israel. And his son, now, and if you don't know it, the, priest, uh, the priestly office, the priestly job, if you want to call it that, was in the, was in the uh, tribe and in the family. And so if, if you were in that tribe and family, your dad's a priest, you're going to be a priest. Okay? Uh, I'm not defending the system, I'm just telling you how it worked. So these two guys are priests, and their dad is the high priest. He's the big dog. But they were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom, again, this is not the permissible custom, but this was what, had, what it had deteriorated into, the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling, and then he would thrust into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. Also, before they burned the fat, that was part of the sacrifice, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. Now, it was part of God's plan that when people offered an animal sacrifice, some of the meat was given to the priest. That was how they earned their living, if you will. And some of the meat was given back to the people who sacrificed. So it wasn't wrong to be receiving the meat, but what they're doing is saying, I want to get the first choice. I want the best choice. I don't want it boiled. I'm tired of that stew. I want to cook it on the fire. And they were doing it so much that they were interfering with the normal practice of sacrifice. So people are coming to worship and they're saying, My God is my belly and I don't care about your worship. Give me what I want. And if the man refused to give him, they said, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would answer, the servant would answer, You must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. This is at the temple. This is outside the place of worship. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for, the, for men, for the, the common people of Israel, abhorred or hated the offering of the Lord. Can you imagine if you came to church today and Roger was out there? Where are you, Roger? There you are. If Roger was out in the parking lot saying, uh, let's see your tithe check. Now, give me part of it. You're not getting in there unless you give me part of it. I'll give you something. (laughs) If somehow that could be done, you'd feel the same way. You'd think, I'm not going to that Baptist church. That guy in the parking lot extorts you every week. (laughs) He was thinking about it, but now he won't be able to do it. People abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now Eli was very old and he heard everything his sons did to all of Israel and how if that wasn't bad enough, they sexually abused the women who came to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So only the men could come in. So the women are there hanging around and they came by and took advantage of them sexually. Could it get any worse? Not really. And so Eli said to them, Why do you do this? For I hear of your evil doings from all the dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people to sin. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father. Then a man of God, another prophet, if you will, came to Eli and he said, here's what the Lord says. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering? Why do you do this? He's talking to Eli about what his kids were doing. Why do you kick at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and you honor your sons more than me? Remember the the basic command? You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and soul, mind and strength. He says, you love your children more than me. To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. Wow, that's a terrible story, isn't it? Eli loved his sons more than God. And so he failed to restrain them. Now, we, we could look at that and say, well, they were adults when they were doing this. Do you think somebody else's kids would have got away with doing that in front of the tabernacle? I don't think so. Even if other people wanted to do something, it's their dad who's in charge of the whole thing. You know, I'm not sure if the psychologist idea that children like boundaries is true or not. I didn't like boundaries when I was a child, but I profited by them. I knew there were things I better not do or else. And I learned that I should obey the authorities of my life, including God. I can't imagine my dad allowing anything close to that at church and he was a pastor too parents there's got to be a consistency that comes out of your genuine faith you have to believe what you believe and you have to live what you say you're going to live and if that means disciplining your children you have to do that if it means disciplining yourself you have to do that your genuine faith in God will result in consistently righteous behavior. Not perfectly righteous behavior, but consistently. And it will result in standards of behavior, and your children will be the better for it. There's a rule at the Ferndale football games that I learned about while I was at the game last week, and that is there are no artificial noisemakers allowed. You can't bring the horn and go, wahh! you can't bring a whistle they specifically mentioned air horns and whistles and after sitting through the game in the Sizemore rooting section I understand that because they made pretty good amount of noise without the artificial noisemakers <laughs> and if they'd have had them they'd have made more noise and then there were some other rooting sections and I can imagine if all those people were going wah 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 it would go out of your mind Being a supportive parent takes time and energy. Band parents are a little more reserved. They're, they're a little more sophisticated. But they're right there helping and doing. When your child plays sports or is in the band or in some club, you do many things to support them. The, the stoles are, are, are at the Puyallup Fair so Grace can show her prize-winning goat today. That sounds like a fun morning. I remember my mom picking me up after sports practice, you know, waiting outside in the cold while my hair froze from swimming, and my mom was late coming to get me, but she always came to get me. I remember being shocked pleasantly when my dad came home from work with a brand new, um, high quality, top of the line tennis racket. I thought, I can't believe you spent money on that. I can remember going through tennis shoes very quickly as I played tennis. Being a supportive parent is expensive and demanding, it's a sacrifice and a blessing. As your children grow and progress, I would suggest to you today that demonstrating genuine faith is expensive and demanding, but you will receive no greater blessing than to know that your children are fellow disciples of Christ. Heavenly Father, I'm fully aware today that we are dependent on you to change the hearts of our children. I wish I had a formula that would guarantee the salvation of children by their parents. But I know from your word, Father, that wicked parents often produce wicked children and godly parents who have a genuine faith often produce godly children. And I just pray that you would help those of us who are parents or grandparents or parents-to-be to work at having a genuine faith in you so that our children might have the best opportunity for their best life of faith in you. Thank you for Michael and his love for you and his desire to be baptized. Bless him as he goes forward in you. Strengthen him and use him in whatever way you may choose to, to forward your work in this world. Father, work in our hearts today as you see fit. I pray in Christ's name, amen.